deep breath in. of my yogi fanatics. So this episode is for my lovely limber people that love to indulge in the spiritual stretches that sharpen the mind, body, and spirit with the discipline of yoga and meditation. And for those of you that are curious for testimonial benefits, this is a great episode. So five months ago, I underwent an amazing ayahuasca experience in Peru at a spiritual retreat center called Arcana. I befriended an awesome young lady there, and she was a yoga instructor at that facility. She, along with all the other Arcana facilitators, were simply amazing. They're very insightful, they're graceful, and they're great at holding that medicine space. They assisted me on my crazed journey to go within and heal parts of myself I either neglected or had not any awareness of. So, me and this yoga instructor, we stayed in touch. We shared our life experience and we shared laughter and after hearing her story, I needed to capture her perspective and share it with you, blessed beings. Her name is Katie Bauschke and she was introduced to the yogic path early on by her father. And well, life led her to want to further pursue with deeper commitment of this yogic way to the lands of where yoga originated. Her story is lovely. She shaved her head. She conducted a 10-day silent meditation along with a crazy nine-point death meditation where she got amazing clarity. And well, not to spoil anything else, I invite you to open your heart, open your ears, and give a listen, like, and share. And I hope you get something out of this, because I certainly did. I thought meditation was only a way for Zen and enlightenment, but Katie enlightened me that that's not only what yoga is for. Yoga is also for gaining powers, like obtaining a powerful penis. And so, don't believe me, just listen to the story, listen to this podcast. I first met you when I finally got to do my craving of this psychedelic, potent, loving, so heard about Mother Ayahuasca plant uh, with the retreat center, uh, Arcana. You're the yoga instructor there. I want to go back to in your life. I want to know where you came from, to the places that you lived, to kind of how you decided to pursue this yoga route that took you to places that made you end up here in Peru. Okay. So I was born and raised in the suburbs of Chicago and I was raised by really lovely, lovely parents. And my dad was sort of a, he was sort of a hippie, you know, like he grew weed and was, was a hippie, you know, when he was in college days, he grew weed and was, (laughs) had long hair and shit. 
Um, but yeah, he was really like my major mentor growing up. And he taught me how to meditate when I was in high school. About Early on. Yeah, like when I was 16 or so. I mean, I feel like nowadays there are a lot of kids that are even meditating much younger than that. But at the time, yeah, that was, I was born in 1987. So at that time it was, it wasn't very common for kids to be meditating. So yeah, my dad was really into Paramahansa Yogananda, who is kind of this, this guru that brought yoga to the Western world in like the 60s, 70s, he wrote the really famous book, The Autobiography of the Yogi. And um, that book sort of goes into like, how essentially yoga is the goal of yoga, the very clear goal of yoga is actually to attain what they call siddhis, um, Mm S-I-D-D-H-I-S, which are literally superpowers. So the goal of the yogis (laughs) was always like, I think it's hilarious because they're not like, yeah, sure, enlightenment, samadhi, moksha, whatever you want to call it in the Indian lineage, that is a thing, like it is talked about, but the the yogic lineage, uh, yoga, the goal, the science of yoga is to do cool shit. (laughs) (laughs) I love that, yeah. Like to levitate and to... You know, I don't know if you've seen these Kumbh Mela festivals where these yogis, like they've, they have controlled their sexual prowess so much that they like literally pull cars with their dicks. Like they pull, <laughs> what? Car, like they pull. Have you seen this? Tons. What? I'm, not in real life. Uh, <laughs> I totally want to see this. Pull a car yeah. with their dicks. Yeah, you should you should Google the Kumbh Mela festival, festival and and watch some of those videos because they are really pretty wild. <laughs> that is exciting. I did not know about this. It yeah, is the Kumbh with the K K U M B H A, I believe, and then it's Mela M E L A. I believe that's how you spell it. Festival, cool. Yeah, and check these that out. these sadhus, these these holy men who in India are really just like these revered guys with dreadlocks that don't have homes that that travel barefoot, pilgrimaging across India, just literally smoking charas, smoking weed, which is like hash. <laughs> like and they're like. This is crazy. Uh, I think everybody else had the, whether they're deeply invested and read a whole bunch or just grazed over it because it's a fad now and, and here in the States. I was like, to reach enlightenment, I didn't know this alternative perspective. Yoga is also another means to get some power. I got to check out these dicks. Man. I got to check out these dicks <laughs> and see if they're really that powerful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... um. Paramahansa Yogananda was kind of, it really sort of popularized yoga in the Western world. And my dad was a really big fan of his. So Paramahansa Yogananda's teaching, his book was called the Self-Realization Fellowship, where he had like yoga classes, different types of breath work, pranayama, various meditations that it was very systematic, right? In some of the yogic texts, if you look at the word yoga in parentheses next to yoga, it will say discipline. Like Mm -hmm. yoga is very much about order. It's very much about discipline. Anyway, so yeah, so Paramahansa Yogananda was my dad's teacher without ever actually knowing him. You know, we all have teachers Mm -hmm. that we don't 
that we follow. Like I follow Wayne Dyer and Deepak Chopra and whoever. It's like, I don't know them, but they're, they're my teachers, you know? Yeah. And that was in Paramahansa Yogananda was my dad's teacher. So um, that really, you really got his feedback of his enthusiasm of this teacher and got you curious yes. or did your dad also just show you it's like, Oh, father daughter relationship. We're going to do yoga. We're going to get powers. Oh, did you see him <laughs> like at a distance, like liking this and having a, a fascination with it that made you have a curious mind too? Yeah, I think, well, the other thing as well was my, my parents, I wasn't raised with religion at all. And I always felt, a, I felt a hole. I felt a void um, because I didn't have any sort of spirituality growing up. Mm-hmm. And today I'm very grateful. And I, and I thank God that I didn't because I'm so open-minded, you know, I don't have any sort of this like Catholic guilt that a lot of people um, <laughs> carry with them into adulthood. Like, yeah. I'm very open to all religions, all spiritual traditions because of that. And I think because of that void, it became a a big value in my life and became something that became very centralized and important in my world. Yeah. So I was always sort of curious, not having any sort of background of spirituality growing up that I, I observed that that was my dad's spirituality and my mom didn't seem to have anything, any clear spiritualism. So I guess, yeah, you're right that my dad was really my main role model and what I looked to in terms of what spirituality was and what it meant. So, and that was mainly yoga and meditation. So I then went to college and ended up doing this course. It was like a week, a little over a week long course that when I signed up, I didn't really, I didn't realize that it was actually a self-realization fellowship workshop. It was this week-long <laughs> thing that was Paramahansa Yogananda's teachings. Did you think it was, and it was an run by effort? like? <laughs> it wasn't even a. It wasn't a class. It was. It was like a thing that you paid extra for to to go to. And I was curious. I wanted to learn more about meditation and more of the like I guess esoteric practices of of yoga and the philosophy. One of the in, philosophy and religion teachers was. Um, this was in college that you got introduced to this course yeah. or you mm-hmm. found about this course well, it was included with the college or was it kind of it external? was extra it so it was something that the one of the philosophy and religion professors was really into himself and okay, he wanted to okay. share it yeah so yeah so you could pay it wasn't i remember it being very cheap but it was just something that yeah i had the privilege to be able to do and in that experience, I did some of the most powerful pranayama, some of the most powerful breath work I've still to this day ever done and had like multiple experiences meditating on what they call the Atman, which is like the closest definition that we have to Atman is soul in English. But it's that which is within you that is unchanging. And we did this, this long meditation on, on the Atman on what it is within us as beings that that is unchanging across time across culture essentially looking into yourself and seeing if i were a different person what's still the same you know mm-hmm. if i were a different age if i were a different thing what is it that still remains you know and so we nice. did this meditation and then we did this crazy breath work for like half hour <laughs> and then i remember laying down and i just like like seeing such a clear past life experience that I was just like, what? Like, 
wow, okay, I was like an African woman that, you know, lived on a beach that used to carry water out, jugs of water on my head, like back to my villages. And that was one of my most profound, I think, profound experiences that I've had with any sort of yogic lineage practice. And that was simple Um, meditation and breath work, huh? Yeah, yeah. I say simple, but not. (laughs) Yeah. It's never as simple as it sounds. Yeah, I still to this day, I would love to be able to find that teaching like that script or something I need to look into look back into the self realization fellowship work and see if I could find that because I would love to share that with other people because it was so powerful for me at the time. And I especially think when we're in that age, that early adulthood, these practices, these spiritual practices can be so incredibly powerful because what they say when you get to like 35 that your brain is just like so solidified that you like you yeah. like have much less neuroplasticity or something you know yeah. oh, but the yeah. other thing that was um really the thing that that shoved me into being in the yoga realm for the rest of my life was that my my main yoga teacher my main yoga role model passed away so my dad died oh Um, yeah no i mean it's okay i'm very at peace with that and Uh i'm pretty sure he's reincarnated as as my dog and he's living with my mom (laughs) living out some past karmic (laughs) shit that they didn't work out in their marriage <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's... So, yeah, I mean, when my dad when my dad got this rare disease called amyloidosis, which is basically like where your bones produce a protein that shouldn't be there. And it's crazy because I remember being in in school in a biology class learning about what disease is. And the definition in my biology textbook was proteins misfolding, like the proteins misfold in a way. And that is essentially what disease is. Mm -hmm. So I'll just, I'll never forget. It's so ingrained in my mind reading that and thinking, okay, that's the definition of disease. And then hearing that my dad was sick and reading the explanation of what this amyloidosis disease is, Mm -hmm. is their definition for it was it's a misfolding of proteins. And I just remember thinking, what bullshit? (laughs) (laughs) They're literally just giving this a name, something they have no idea what it is. Uh And they had no idea. They really had no idea what it was. They had no idea how to handle it. They didn't diagnose him. He probably was sick for about two years and was like a stubborn man, you know, in in his early 50s and didn't like want to go to the doctor or was in denial or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time that he was like, okay, I have a really serious problem was going and getting tested. It, it took them like six to seven months for them to even give what he had a name. That's crazy. And yeah. At that time, it really wasn't very common. What they were able to tell him was that it was serious. Basically that, that, wherever this misfolding of proteins is occurring in the bone marrow, that these proteins need something to latch onto, right? So wherever this protein is being produced, it finds the closest organ and it attacks that organ, right? 
So the crazy thing was that in my family in the suburb of Chicago that I grew up in, we lived on a well. We had well water. That's very rare. Yeah. Yeah, it is, right? And especially in like the suburbs of Chicago. Yeah, it was yeah. really, really rare. But one of our neighbors also got the same disease like at the same time as my dad. And there were like oh, wow. other things like, I don't know, like my, the parents of the neighborhood have sort of this like Aaron Brockovich kind of <laughs> you know, theory of like, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, but that's basically what happened was that was a true story where there was, something in the water. was the water that was, yeah, something in the water that was like killing everyone. And um, yeah, so, so the, the parents of, um, of the neighborhood still have these, these theories about, you know, was there something in the water? Why, why did they both get this, this same disease? Um, but Rob, so the other man that our neighbor that got the disease, his was being produced closest to his liver. So his attacked his liver and he's still alive. But the amyloidosis in my dad, it was being produced closest to his heart. So mm. it attacked his heart and he basically, he basically had a heart attack. But prior to that, he had all these symptoms of like his lungs were filling with fluid. He was having to get his lungs drained of fluid, like sometimes twice a week. Wow. He was retaining so much water that, like, he was super, super puffy. <laughs> they were treating him with chemo. They didn't know what to do. Oh they were, God. like, throwing chemo at him. Like, this is the closest thing that we have to, you know. To combat something that they don't really, or they're not very well familiar with. Exactly. So how old, exactly. how old were you? So that's probably, I, was I mean. 20, I was 22. So that was oh exactly goodness. a decade ago. That is. Yeah. A very sensitive age to lose the loved one so i could only imagine exactly. how impacting that was for your life yeah especially my role model and my my you know um your father i mean that's yeah my dad huge. exactly yeah. exactly but so he introduced but, to you the, the way of the yogi and so what what so actually this I'm pretty curious about this. What coping mechanisms did you do other than pursue yoga when your father passed away? Mm. Well, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of emotions went up and down. They weren't healthy ones. They were <laughs> not healthy ones. No, in no. that time, I was in a bad. I mean, I was in a bad place. You know, I was like, I was drinking and smoking a lot of weed occasionally using other drugs you know i was living in missouri i was in a really abusive relationship um that i felt really stuck in because he was like the last person that was you know he was like the last guy that would have, was ever going to know my dad and i felt really connected to him like i had to stay with him because he was because he was the last person that knew my father and mm -hmm. eventually it was just I, I hit a breaking point, you know, I was like, I'm just completely, I have no respect for myself anymore. And I was constantly hung over and feeling like shit. And then sometimes I would find myself on my yoga mat and I would sit in like pigeon pose or something or any, anything. And what came, what really, really came to me was this feeling of sitting in discomfort where mm -hmm. I would like sit in a yoga pose and I would just stay there and it would like physically in my body, I, I was uncomfortable, 
and I would just breathe through it. And sometimes I would just bawl. I would just cry my eyes out. Mm-hmm. But it was like every time going back to my mat and, and forcing myself really to sit in that discomfort, to be with it, to be present with it, mm-hmm. that made it so that I was able to go through it instead of around it, instead of avoiding it the way that I was with, with drugs and alcohol and, and an abusive relationship for so long. Like instead of hiding from it, I actually faced my sadness and faced my regrets and my, you know, really my self-hatred at the time was what mm-hmm. it was for not being there for him and for not. Did you, uh... um, did you consciously know that you had to sit in these positions and endure the emotional torment that you were feeling at the time? Or was it just kind of like a subconscious thing where you're, you needed to do something, so you just wanted to sit on your mat, and it just kind of slowly but surely you started to recognize, like, oh, this is uncomfortable. Um, I'm sitting with it. I'm dealing with it. But afterwards, you kind of feel a little bit better, okay? Did you consciously know you were doing that or... Never know. You know, that's a really hard question to answer, to be honest. I, I think it was probably a little bit of both. But I think what really was unconscious at the time that became very apparent to me over time was how much information is stored in the body and how my sadness was, it was like practicing yoga felt better when I was really, really emotionally fucked up, (laughs) if that makes sense. Like when I was really, really sad doing yoga, it was like, like, because it opens you, it cracks you wide open when you hold that, that sadness in your body. And then you can actually like, like do something to open yourself up physically and you can feel how it affects your your mental state, your emotional body, and your spiritual body. Like mm-hmm. it's it's extremely extremely opening is the only word that I can think of for it. Because when you're so closed and you're sad or you're depressed or you have any sort any of these emotions that are just really very self deprecating, yoga is such an incredible practice to get you back into your body and to get you back into a sense of of really feeling good about yourself and being content where you are just by moving the energy that's in you that's so stagnant. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know where the will was coming from to to draw me back to my mat. It, there was this pull, you know, to that feeling of like that was home and that was the place that I could really feel at home in my body and in my spirit was was on my yoga mat and really looking at realizing how that mat became a place of it became a place of so much more than just old tires or whatever yoga mats are made out of (laughs) nowadays like it was a place where I was inside of my shadow you know I was inside of my shadow just looking at all of my darkness and and being fully aware of it and and seeing how everything is like I always think of the the yin yang symbol you know how one side is dark but there's that little hole of speck of light and then the other side is like light and there's that little speck of dark and you can Uh always always it was like I really fully understood the ebb and flow of life and of energy and the way that our lives are 
you know, full of both of these things. They're full of light and dark and it's all an interplay of working with the energy and learning how to accept it all as, as a whole. It's probably your daddy bringing you that force to just come to your mat and just sit with it. And I don't know. Exactly. I mean, that's pretty awesome though, that you still, whether it's your daddy or this natural will or this just innate wisdom within you to be so connected to your mat to find it again in this emotional torment you're going through. Did you realize how yoga, this practice is much more than just a practice to just move your body and eventually try to gain some powers out of it? Or did you already (laughs) kind of discard that and just use it as a way to heal and then just kind of continue on from there? Yeah. So well, I, I started teaching yoga at my university. So the same place where I was, I did that course, the self-realization fellowship. And this was at the same time when my dad was sick. I was, I was actually getting into teaching yoga at that time. And it was sort of, it wasn't even really a choice. Like it just kind of happened. I was a sophomore in college and the senior, the senior yoga instructor was about to graduate. And she said, you're coming to classes all the time. We need someone who's going to be here for the next two years. Can, do you want to become a yoga teacher? <laughs> and she was like, the school will pay to, to get you trained. It's, it's like a really simple weekend training, which is crazy because nowadays you need 200 hours. <laughs> it's like at the time I was like. Dang, you got in there at a good time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now you gotta like fast for 30 days and then you gotta <laughs> go to india and yeah. right <laughs> pronounce all the names yeah. in and pay like five thousand dollars on top of it yeah yeah totally. <laughs> yeah so um i i just sort of it just sort of happened you know it was just meant to be i just started teaching and then it was funny because that teacher was like we want you to teach because you're going to be here for the next two years and then i realized once I started teaching yoga, that that was literally all I wanted to do. Really? And I was like, fuck school. I'm dropping out. <laughs> no way. So I dropped out of school. And in this pursuit of, I was like, I'm going to teach yoga for the rest of my life. That's all I want to do. Well, and I was like, I'm, cool. I'm going to go to India. <laughs> and then when my dad died, I moved back to Chicago for a little bit of time to really just kind of heal and be closer to my family which also wasn't really happening I was like living in my mom's house with my older sister and we were just like partying drinking (laughs) like not like really just shoving down like everything that was you know all of our sadness so one day exactly yeah and so one day I I was working in a restaurant my sister was working in a bar and I said I gotta get myself out of this hole I'm going to India I was like, I'm doing it. And I said, I'm going to shave my head. I actually, at the time, I wanted to burn everything I owned. <laughs> I was like, I'm oh, going to wow. burn everything. That's a freaking fresh so restart. My head, and I'm Hard, go to India. fiery restart right there. <laughs> yeah. And I was planning on going by myself. And then my older sister, the one that was a bartender and that I was doing a lot of drinking with, at the time, she said, I'm not doing anything with my life. I want to go with you. So we decided we were going to take our dad's ashes and we were going to shave our heads and we were going to fly to India. So that we did. What? Um, The other part of that was that she ended up basically inviting a girl that she bartended with to come with us. And um, 
so the, the three of us all went together. We lived on an ashram for five weeks and did, we did a Hatha yoga teacher training there, which was really, really, really traditional. It was very, I learned a lot of chanting, a lot of pranayama and very basic yoga teaching. It so was very- what is this place called again that you guys were staying at? Paramartha Nikatan, and that's an ashram. So an ashram is, it's basically a yogic community. It's usually a, where like Hindu monks live and live in, in the way that they live, in the way of karma yoga, of giving back to the community, of eating an Ayurvedic diet, doing lots of obviously yoga and meditation, mm-hmm. lots of devotion, lots That's of bhakti yoga, lots of singing and things like that. And it was right on the, on the Holy River, right on the, the Mother Ganga. And I found this ashram. The reason why I wanted to go to this ashram specifically is because they took in orphaned children and they would give the orphaned children religion and purpose and family, community, food, um, education, all of these things. And I thought that, that was really cool. I was like, oh, you know, there's an extra layer of purpose in this mm-hmm. place. That's pretty cool. And it was in Rishikesh, which is like where the Beatles studied <laughs> yoga, at the Maharishi Ashram. Nice. Um, so it became like a very, Rishikesh is a very sort of famous yoga town in India, in the, the foothills of the Himalayas. So oh it's sort God, of like rolling badass. hills and right on, right on the Ganga, right on this holy river. I mean, there's just cows everywhere and like all these crazy people coming from all over india doing these pilgrimages just to go to these certain cities along the ganga where they pray like they walk with no shoes on and they they walk for miles and miles like thousands of miles it's so crazy it's so you feel like it's pretty diverse it's part of something so much bigger is it like people all over the world diverse or just in that region diverse you know, India in. is not very like heavily touristed, and I will say that there's that is what makes India so special, because you know not your average person is going to go to like one of the dirtiest places <laughs> in the world. You have to have a really deep spiritual connection. If you're not interested in the spiritual, like why? I don't know why anybody would go to India. Unless yeah. they're going there for work, like they're going to Bangalore because they work in tech or something, you know, <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like going to New Delhi for business. But really, like uh, India is a place of, it's a place that enlivens your spirit. It's a place that that feeds your senses <laughs> with colors and smells and, you know, just oh, it's 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 so amazing. But the people there are so incredibly loving so unbelievably loving and they fucking love tourists they love (laughs) white people with like especially having blonde hair and blue eyes i was bald at the time like i shaved my head you You actually did it oh my god (laughs) totally did it hell yeah picture later (laughs) yes i gotta see this picture Uh, yeah. So these people will, they looked at me like, like I was the most beautiful thing they've ever seen. And I feel like a bald alien, you know, and they're looking <laughs> at me like with these, with their bobble heads, like, you know, they, bo- they bobble their heads as a way yeah. of like, yeah. it, it communicates like friendliness and kindness yeah. and a welcoming. 
so they're bobbling their heads with these they big are definitely smiles bobbling on their faces. Heads, yeah. And they and they and they put their fingers up and they're like, one photo, one photo, please. And I'm like, what? You want me to take a picture of you? And then you realize that they want to take a picture of you, and they're throwing their babies in your arms. And before oh you know God. it, you're holding babies and just like smiling for these people's photos. Like, what are you gonna do with this photo? That's crazy. <laughs> That's awesome. uh, That's crazy. uh, I'll never forget this one time I was on a train um, and there were these like village women. They they got on the train and they're all in their their beautiful saris with the food that they just picked from, you know, from the land and the water that they're bringing back to their, back to their communities. And, and they're all looking at me and they're just sitting there bobbling their heads at me, smiling at me. Oh, that must be so freaky. Okay. I'm smiling. Just like, this is great. And, and, and then they call me over, like they wave me over uh-huh. and this one woman waves me over and she grabs me. I, I walk over and she grabs me and she puts me on her lap and she what? starts bouncing me up and down. Like I'm a little what? baby, like bouncing me. <laughs> and I'm just like, like, this is the way the lady rides kind of thing. And I'm just sitting there just dying, laughing. Oh my like, God. That freaks so me out a little bit all of these women were all just sitting there just dying laughing and that's the kind of that's the kind of experiences that you get in india you're just like what's like who does that but that is amazing like yeah. that was the, one of the most joyous moments of my entire life and i will never forget that you know <laughs> how you could just share something so special with mm-hmm. a complete stranger you don't speak the same language but you're just they're affectionate with you and you know they treating you like like you're their own child and how much how much love is is there in in that kind of an interaction i mean that would never happen at home wow so you got me looking forward to go to india sometime (laughs) so how long did you uh stay at this this community that you're at uh learning were you specifically learning like did you want to just narrow in on your yoga practice or was it the whole shebang whatever india can offer of their customs and culture. So I was on the ashram for for five weeks was the training and then I stayed an extra week. And then after that, that time at the ashram, which really to sort of paint you a picture of what the ashrams, at least what Parmars Nikitan looks like is very much something that you would imagine like out of an Indian movie, you know, like this beautiful architecture with these giant statues of all these different gods and goddesses of different Uh, colors with many arms and the beautiful garments and things like that. It was the ashram was on, on the Ganga. So it's right on the river and the river is so, so sacred to these people that they do what's called an Arati ceremony every single night every night they do this sacred fire ceremony we did that at arcana the intention setting ceremony was the Ar- the arati ceremony where we pray to the fire pray to the sun oh nice so, and you face so each direction and okay yeah i mean that's not like the traditional indian way of doing it but that was the ceremony exactly so the arati ceremony is is praising the light. So it's the divine light in all of us. We say namaste, which means the divine light in me honors and respects the divine light in each, in in you. Mm -hmm. It's bowing to that inner light, which there's this really deep connection with light in all, all spiritual traditions. Mm -hmm. But in yoga specifically, they talk a lot about light and our inner light, the light of the sun. And the sun is what gives life. You know, the sun is what has sustained human 
I mean, that and water for, you know, for centuries. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, there's this strong respect for light in, in the yogic tradition. So fire is very cleansing. So they do this, this sacred fire ceremony where they have these gold sort of things, these handheld structures that are hard to describe, except for the fact that they're gold and they hold candles. And someone will walk around with this, this sacred fire and you can hover your hands over the sacred fire. You can touch your third eye, put it over the crown of your head, maybe at your heart. Fire is, has this long history in all traditions of being very cleansing, very purifying of our energy. So yeah, so every single night, the thousands, not even hundreds, at least a thousand people a night, because India is so packed, will go down to the river. And the ashram that I was on, this this Hindu monk, Mataji, would um, lead these RT ceremonies where they sing these hymns, these, these mantras, these Sanskrit songs, um, with tablas and sitars and like all the, you know, cool Indian instruments with yeah. these little kids, these Rishi Kumars, as they call them, the little monks, the orphan kids that they take in and they all play the instruments and, and everybody comes to just sing and celebrate in, in bhakti and devotion for the that divine. Is. Imagine like orange robes on the Ganga with like this giant Shiva statue in the water. Uh, and there's just people everywhere coming to just sing and, and in devotion. And my sister night? and I had every night they oh do God. this. I didn't go every night, but mo most nights. Yeah. Okay. And uh, but man, we were up meditating starting at five a.m. every day. So and they they tell you you have to shower beforehand. So like because energetically you have to like cleanse. There are all these yogic practices that involve like you have to clean your energy every morning before you practice. So you shower before. Oh, so it'd wow. be like up at four thirty every morning, you know. And sometimes this RT ceremony would go until like ten at night. So. I mean, oh we'd be goodness. doing yoga and philosophy and everything all day long up until like 9 p.m. And then you get to the, cer the ceremony at the end of the night and you're like, oh, I don't want to go. As beautiful <laughs> it is, it is. You're like, oh, I'm yeah. skipping it tonight, you know. <laughs> Jeez. So, That's good. That's yeah. demanding. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yoga is discipline for sure. It's very structured. But then after that, I went to a town where the Dharamsala or Dadamshala, which is where the Tibetan people live in exile in, in the Himalayas, like very north in India, and did and was spent some time on a Tibetan Buddhist monastery doing a 10-day silent meditation. That was like going from, you know, we get a lot of overlap of like the yogic and the Hindu and the Vedic teachings um and the buddhist teachings because you know the buddha lived in india so yeah that's um all that area so i can only imagine they kind of cross correlate every now and then exactly and they share the same language they both use sanskrit so it's like there's a lot of crossover but there's it's really important to distinguish the difference between buddhism and these hindu or these yogic these vedic traditions okay um because there are differences and the same way that like with Sikhism and Jainism and all these things that all these practices that have their roots in, in this Vedic knowledge, all, you know, they have different customs, different practices, different rituals and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, <clears throat> but, 
yeah, so it was really cool to go from this this yogic lineage teaching to this much more sort of lighthearted kind of Tibetan Buddhist monastery where um, sure, yes, there were a lot of rules, like rules enough that you're supposed to be silent, but there's something about the feeling of Buddhism that has this very like, it's just a lightheartedness, you know, it's, it always brings a smile to your face. We, we think of the, the jolly Buddha, the one with the big belly. And it's like, there's a, there's a happiness to Buddhism for me personally, that was just so beautiful in terms of like going into your suffering and looking at your suffering in order to find more happiness in this life, you know, um, a very tangible, very, very, <clears throat> very realistic and helpful teachings. And this, this 10 day silent meditation led up to at the end of the 10 days, it led up to what they call the nine point death meditation. And essentially this, this nine point death meditation, well, in Buddhism, they like love numbers. They love like, you know, the four noble truths and like, it's like all numbered. It's all like that. Nine point death meditation. It it literally is you're guided through these nine steps that you are. So you're meditating for sometimes over an hour a day, you know, and this, this particular meditation is probably like an hour and 15 minutes where they guide you through in your mind's eye, you are going through these steps of what it would be like if you were about to die. And they actually take you through your death. And I didn't, you know, my sister and I didn't know that we were getting into this kind of a meditation, but it was the most profound and most powerful thing that we could have ever done after having lost our father, you Uh know? And it's like, for example, in the meditation, you know, they take you through mindfulness. So you get to this point of you're really, really relaxed. And then you, they take you into contemplation. So these contemplation meditations are like where you're reflecting and contemplating on, on important concepts. One of them happens oh, wow. to be largely about death. Uh, it's cause that's Buddhism. It's all about death. Uh-huh. <laughs> they love talking about that. So yeah. So they walked us through, for example, one of the steps is, so you go to the doctor and you find out that you're sick and that you're so sick that you're going to die. And then the next step is you have to go to your family and you have to tell all your family members that you're going to die. And then third step, you actually experience and feel the suffering of what it feels like to be ill. And then you go through all these different steps until you get to the ninth step of like you're envisioning in your mind who is around you on your deathbed. Wow. You know, who's around you. And then when you die, you envision who is with you in the sky as you're crossing over. And I have such vivid memories of like spiritually holding the hands of all the, my loved ones in that space and just tears rolling down my cheeks, just like feeling of what it would really be like to, le- to leave this earth. And to pass over? To- and at the, at the time, at age 23, uh-huh. like... You know, and to really confront that in life is to me like the most powerful, most important thing that we can ever do. It's like such, it's such an incredible practice that is so essential to learn how to live. And after that, I mean, I had so much clarity, so much clarity in my life of exactly what I wanted. I knew that 
since I dropped out of school because I wanted to study yoga, it was funny that I ended up taking this yogic path and the yogic path took me back to wanting to go back to school. (laughs) (laughs) My yogic path was like, you want to do this. You want to graduate college, but not for anyone else. Not for your parents, not for your social, not for society, not for social idealisms. You want to do it for you and you want to do it so that you can feel like you completed something. And, you know, my my sister ended up leaving India shortly after that. She went into another three-day silent meditation and then was like, got confirmation after that one that she wanted (laughs) to become a nurse. And she was like, I want to become a nurse. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home. And she did it. And now she's a nurse. And yeah, I mean it's uh that's pretty badass so this 10 day silent meditation is this also in this uh that what's it called again the shawarma village shawarma community so that is that one's a monastery so that place is called tushita meditation center i think is the full name i know it's tushita t-u-s-h-i-t-a and that is in darabsala tushita T-U-S-H-I-T-A. T-U-S-H-I-T-A. It's like meditation center or monastery village, something like that. But it's Tushita. And it's in Dharamsala, Dharamshala. It's like, if you look up like where the Dalai Lama lives in exile, it's where the Dalai Lama lives. Like you can walk by the Dalai Lama's house. Oh, wow. Nice. Stuff like that. It's That place is insanely beautiful. McLeod Ganj is like the, the name of the village outside of the major city and it's i mean it, I, I have an a special a special love for it because i was in silence for so long on the side of this mountain in this beautiful place like overlooking you know these it's that's more at the beginning of the himalayas but you're still sort of in the foothills where but you're getting like right in the clouds so they call it yeah. the name of the town is the cloud ganj is like you're in a cloud like it's it's really got this special this special vibe to it with especially with being very buddhist like that is a it's an extremely tibetan buddhist area and it feels very different from the rest of india you found out about this monastery after your uh your place at the uh on the ashram yeah on the ashram i learned of the of the monastery where we could do the silent meditation that's pretty badass so uh yeah just to bring it full circle to sort of to finish i suppose the the original question that you had for me about how this has all brought me to peru i also have had this sort of subtext in my life of the first time i went to college i minored in spanish and i've always wanted to be fully fluent in spanish And for some reason, this is another crazy thing that I actually was just reminded of by the other girl that came to India with us. That when I was in India, I went to see a Vedic astrologist who I had like a three and a half hour appointment with this woman. She was this wise fortune teller lady that, I mean, she told me, she like did this crazy tarot card reading on me and she pulled the death card And I remember her saying like flat out, like someone very close to you just died very recently. And she was so accurate on so many levels. It was just, she blew my mind. I was spent most of that time crying, I'm pretty sure. But she also, I had forgotten this. And this is, that's, this is what's so crazy. I'd forgotten this until my friend recently just reminded me of it. 
So somehow in my subconscious, it was there, but it wasn't as though I was planning it. This Vedic astrologist told me that, that the only drug that I should ever take is ayahuasca. What? And she told me that I would work with that medicine. What? Yeah. And I'd forgotten about this. I'd completely forgotten about this. And I was on the phone with my friend that I went to India with. And she reminded me of that. And I was like, holy shit. I completely forgot about that. But I, I don't know if she planted the seed or if I, that it's just part of my destiny or what happened. But there was some, there for a long time there was always this draw, as they say, the call, like I just heard the call to Mother Ayahuasca. And there, there is something about that medicine that the second that I drank Ayahuasca for the first time, I was in Colorado with Colombian shamans, Colombian taitas. In Colorado? Um, this, uh, yeah, in oh, Colorado, wow. this, this organization called Origen Sagrada. They're kind of based outside of, um, somewhere outside of Medellin, Colombia. They, uh, yeah, I, I will never forget. I mean, yes, I was afraid. I had fear, but it was like the second that I drank the medicine, I felt this familiarity, like so familiar. Like I'd been there so many times before, like lifetimes before, centuries before. That's better. It's, it's so indescribable, but I, I just felt that. so connected to the medicine. Like I just, like I knew her, like I knew grandmother ayahuasca. And I never understood it as, you know, people talk about her and they talk about the way that the medicine talks to you and all of these ways of speaking about it. It kind of like irked me a little bit. I'd be like, I don't get it. You know, I just yeah, had yeah. so much like doubt. And this, the second that I connected, the second that I drank that medicine, it was like, I was able to keep it down. Like there are people vomiting violently and I'm just going, why is this? why is this so easy for me to keep in and, and work with mm -hmm. and connect with spirit? And, and all these people are, you know, explained in the next day in the circle of all the struggles that they had. But I felt like it wasn't anywhere near as hard for me because I felt like I had been there before. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to explain, but an extreme level of comfort. And now I really see the way in which the medicine path, the shamanic path, and the yogic path are extremely tied. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the roots of yoga, if you really do your research into what yoga is and where it comes from, yoga was originally shamanism. Yeah, didn't they? Uh, I think I read one text somewhere that they were doing it in caves, deep yeah. caves in the dark to just help with the... Uh, they still do. There are still journey. yogis that live in caves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. oh, yeah. Definitely. Awesome. There's an incredible movie on Netflix that's called Yoga, the Architecture of Peace. And it's a photographer that basically decided that he wanted to go study under like the, the most remote wise yogis that there are. And it's like filmed incredibly and it's got a lot of these really beautiful images of these yogis in caves definitely watch that movie it's yoga the architecture of peace but yeah uh, i realize now the more work that i do with the medicine the more i realize that the medicine is teaching 
us all that all of these spiritual traditions are completely intertwined and that it all comes from source and there is no separation and the tales of the serpent Mm -hmm. like all these images across religions and spiritual texts of the snake the serpent and how mother ayahuasca is you feel her as this snake you know that she is a snake when you drink this medicine and and it is completely embedded there is something embedded in our dna that 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 has this representation of the snakes yeah the caduceus the staff of hermes Mm -hmm. the medical staff it's like it's in everything this symbol is to health and and i really believe that there is something to this medicine and that it is it is more ancient than time and that the plants teach us things and i mean how else how else the fuck did they figure out to mix <laughs> chacruna leaves with the ayahuasca vine you know yeah. like the, they say that other plants taught them how mm-hmm. to do this and it has to be true because once you get in that space, you can feel this plant intelligence that, again, that we were talking about in the beginning of, of this podcast, that the plants, the earth is constantly teaching us. Mm-hmm. And we have to receive. We have to learn from the earth and, and, and listen, you know. And I think so much of illness and mental illness, you know, mental illness, which also leads to physical illness is is. Yeah. is is what I've read recently in this in this book on um, wilderness therapy, where they call it nature deficit disorder, and I love that term, and I think that it's so true that yeah. you know we're we have all these quote mental illnesses, attention deficit disorder, all these different <laughs> things that yeah. you know the as soon as you get these people who supposedly have problems with depression and all of these things, as soon as you get them back in touch with nature, as soon as you get their hands in the dirt, they're close to animals again, close to the life of the planet, mm-hmm. like touching grass, that is one of the most healing things that we can possibly do. And to me, I mean, I know that you and I have talked about this and you know how I feel about it, but the more, the second that I am in a city, I feel totally constricted and I feel so exposed, especially since working to, with the medicine, I feel so exposed to all these energies that, that aren't mine, you know? And, mm-hmm. and as soon as I, I reconnect with the earth and reconnect close to plant life, it's, it's, you feel its healing power and, you're, and you feel its abundance, you know? And you never feel that fear and that trapped sense of the constricting binding nature that the city imposes on us and forces us to to sort of self-implode in sadness and 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 all of these things it's like as soon as i'm in nature i don't feel isolated anymore you know and i think that's another thing that this coronavirus is doing is a lot of people are realizing that they may not be able to have human contact, but they can have contact with nature. Yeah. And they can go out and find these little pockets of time to just be with nature and that that is extremely healing. And that is medicine. You can feel it. Putting your bare feet in the mud, in the grass, just there's this mm-hmm. weird grounding. Exactly. No, yeah, you're going on a, a wonderful tangent there. I didn't want to interrupt you. So how did you find out about it in, in, in Colorado? 
how did you was it a network with people or did you see something online or so uh, in knowing that i was going to go to south america i was going to south america with with my ex-boyfriend and he wanted to try it in a place of comfort before trying it in south america in the motherland <laughs> and yeah well and then it just sort of again it was something that just sort of fell into place because he just googled it like he didn't really we didn't really think that we were going to find any places where we could drink ayahuasca in in the US unless maybe yeah. we like i don't know traveled to california or some place where they that was my first experience with ayahuasca was in california oh is that is that yeah. right it was with a, a group of renegade hippies though so it was like really under, <laughs> it was really under the radar where you had to know people and be contacted oh with man people. i would love to hear like, more yeah, about it's that it's not illegal so, so yeah, that was my first experience. So I, I thought I was pretty lucky, but, um, but so your ex-boyfriend found it online in, in Colorado. Yeah. And it was like, I mean, the retreat was happening, uh, like a couple weeks later. Oh, wow. So we were like, okay, this is meant to be, we signed up, we did it. Um, and then ended up doing another, so it was two night ceremony. And then ended up doing another two night ceremony with them. This is both in Estes Park, Colorado. And was it actual and actual uh, Shabibo shamans facilitating, or was it not Shabibo? No. So they no. they're Taitas from Colombia. Oh, that's so right. So in yeah. Colombia, yeah, um, from the Putumayo region. But yeah, um, yes. Yeah, so to answer your question, I that was sort of my introduction to the medicine, and then. And then I drank the medicine a couple times more when I was in Colombia. And I knew like the second time that I drank ayahuasca that I wanted to facilitate. Yeah. Like I saw what those people were doing and the way that they helped. And, you know, being in the healing profession already and, and being in a, play, in a position of service, like being a yogi also means being a, working in seva, as they call it, being in service all the time, that I knew that I wanted to to serve, to serve the medicine. And it was crazy because I set my intention that I was traveling around Colombia for six months and only spent like a month at a time in one place, sometimes less. So I was moving around a lot and I knew that when I got to Peru that I wanted to settle and that I wanted to work with the medicine. So it was like, literally, Michael, I set that out. I said the intention, I want to work with the medicine. <laughs> And I would like to stay somewhere for a long period of time. And I swear when you're just like really switched on and, and connected into that matrix of energy, like things just manifest, things mm -hmm. just happen for you, you know? And I went to this hippie commune, like an actual hippie commune based <laughs> off of the, the rainbow gathering thing. It's called Autoides. It's out in the jungle outside of Iquitos. This place is like, you have to walk an hour in your bare feet with mud up to your like mid shin for an uh. hour just to get to this place that's like completely open air there's like no mosquito coverage unless you're in your like under your mosquito net in your bed and then the jungle in the amazon that's like so intense oh wow so it's a really really intense place but it's also really beautiful and really wild and special anyway i met three people that worked at arcana there and i was teaching some yoga classes to the community and and i just so happened to ask them like hey are you guys looking for a yoga teacher and they said you know what i think we actually are and two days later jose the owner of arcana got back to me and and i was like on the boat from now to 
<laughs> to you know into the jungle like two days later to start at arcana it just all fell into place and it was just it couldn't have been more perfect it just happened so gracefully in exactly. sync with just getting your feet a little bit muddy and uh, exactly just being at the right place at the right time that's cool that's awesome and now i'm really enjoying after you know two and a half months of being fully immersed in the medicine and fully immersed in service and then and then leaving arcana really only because i had this yoga retreat coming up here in the sacred valley mm -hmm. which was then canceled due to the coronavirus <laughs> yeah and i'm i'm now here at my friend's uh who was the head chef at arcana his mom's house and his mom is a shaman and, and i can still work with the medicine really learn a lot from her about what it means to live this path and now it's a beautiful it's a really beautiful next step in my life to integration and the more i integrate the more passionate i become about integration and my dream is to have an integration center i think that we really really need them yeah and that's my goal that is my step in life at some point so we'll see how the universe correlates the details but um <laughs> It, that that's, too will that's also awesome. happen. Yeah, that too will also happen. <laughs> yeah, this is just a momentary pause, even though it's kind of making us go all stir crazy with this global corona hold right now. But um, yeah, well, uh, can I say <laughs> what? that the coronavirus is is causing a lot of like strife and stress for a lot of people? I think at the same time, have you heard of this notion of prison fantasy? That's what they call it. The prison fantasy. No, I'm not. Yeah. So the prison fantasy is this idea that a lot of people don't really talk about that much, but some people, myself, I am definitely one of these people that have this prison fantasy of the desire to be like locked away for a certain amount of time where you have nothing to do. Oh, wow. And that we all sort of like desire this, that we all crave and wish that we could like go to a cabin in the woods with nobody around so we could just read 20 books, like, because we're so busy all the time that, okay. We, oh, okay. that we actually crave that, that we actually want just time to ourselves to do absolutely nothing. And I think that that's why like, people love these like these like silent meditation retreats and and these other types of retreats and these dietas and things like that where you go and do nothing in a tumbo for <laughs> however much time completely by yourself like like we want that you know and i i certainly really want that so for me as much as this time is is crazy because i can't look towards my future i don't know what my future holds at the same time, I am like You're planning on capitalizing, thriving. <laughs> I'm like loving it. I'm loving being able to just play music when I want and to, you know, create yoga content, like online yoga content that I never would have had the time uh -huh. to do otherwise. It's like I'm, I'm this, this time, this space, this virus is actually giving me this prison fantasy that I've always <laughs> had that I can fulfill all okay well desires now that, you, that i've always wanted now that you to, put it like that I yeah yeah because i would like when i was in the military when i was in the marine corps i used to get excited to go to deployments 
because we had a, a good amount of downtime to to do nothing and i've always wanted to go away in the himalayas and learn mm. the the buddhist way and um, really or disappear in the jungle or yeah i've always had these yeah i didn't know it was actually an idea that was termed oh the prison fantasy but i've always like was looking forward dedicated time well, basically i could work on myself like meditate mm-hmm. and and yeah read all these different bibles and books and scriptures and and exactly you know, figure shit out and so yeah i didn't know that that was actually a thing maybe it was all in the back of our heads and the collective consciousness of people finally like had that certain number to have that momentum for it to make it happen <laughs> yeah 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 exactly yeah i read about well, i um read about this and i listened to a podcast he a guy named damien eccles he was on both the Duncan Trestle podcast and um, <laughs> another podcast that I listened to. Yeah, he's super funny. But Damien Eccles was this this guy that was wrongfully convicted of of murdering like multiple young boys and was was in jail for many years and on death row and then eventually was found to be innocent. But he spent the majority many years in solitary confinement. Oh, wow. And he learned the practices of high magic while he was in ah, solitary awesome. confinement. And he wrote a book called High Magic, Magic with a K, C-K. And I'm reading it right now. It's, it's, it's good. Um, yeah. It's not great. I'm not, I'm not in the point where it's great yet because okay. I'm still very early on in the book. Do you see it getting hear, great or just? Well, basically the, what I'm learning is that these practices of ceremonial magic are – largely like yogic practices it's largely meditation and i haven't learned anything new is the thing okay um so i've what i've been learning is is just stuff that i already learned from the yogic tradition so it hasn't been that exciting for me but um he writes in a way that makes magic very accessible to the reader which is which is great and he gives very practical tools so i think that when he, when i get further along in the book and he starts doing more of these like more magic like Aleister Crowley um, inspired type of magic rituals, mm-hmm. it will be much more interesting. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm glad you brought that up because actually that is what I'm utilizing my time with right now. <laughs> with what? Magic? So, uh, I'm trying to get deeper in my meditations. I want to get deeper in my ah. meditations. We've spoke before about seeing symbols and touching on sleep paralysis to astral projection. And God yes. damn it, I want to get deeper. And so I want to know, I want to learn rituals and ceremonies that would help me summon and speak with either ascended masters or high intelligent beings. And so, yeah, that's actually on my... Have you heard of this 5D thing? The fifth dimension? Yeah. That That we're transmuting to? I don't really know a whole lot about it, but from what I understand, oh, people who practice density. 5D practice like this connection with archangels and yeah. ascended fist- masters and things like that. I follow a lot of weird shit that <laughs> touches on that, but I still don't really understand the knowledge with it. I, it kind of helps me understand it a little bit better by terminology. Like we're in a physical reality. We're in the third dimension, but 
these other interdimensional beings, just like how we can only hear a certain decibel and only see a certain frequency, beyond that are different vibrations of frequencies that are so high pitched that it's going to be blind to our human senses. And so mm. I, I have heard of the the fifth, the fourth and fifth density of these interdimensional beings that with help of uh, magic mushrooms or some psychedelics that would make your brain loose and uh, your senses more heightened to access these higher realms. It's mm-hmm. what you to help access and communicate or, you know, glimpse those interdimensional beings in these, these fifth density realities. But that's, that's all I know about it in terms of terminology. Yeah. And I guess apparently there is like rituals and customs you could do to help protect you because it's like going to the abyss. <laughs> there's benevolent, there's um, probably malicious entities out there, just like how there is people in the world. Uh, but yeah. I hear they're mostly, you know, kind and curious, just like us. Mm-hmm. So, however, I was able to like close my eyes, breathe hold that space and then just like be somewhere else for a moment. And uh, it like, it was like internal was just like a, an expanse of different multi-dimensional reality where I was like in this weird frog land again, where it was yeah. very, it was very uh, reptile-like, but, and there was some sort of weird intelligence to it. I don't know if maybe I was watching Tiger King for so long, but at one point <laughs> I felt, at one point I felt like myself being, <laughs> like a powerful like tiger and I was like licking my teeth and I was like oh I got something <laughs> but um and I was like getting excited and I'm just trying to contain this excitement but I felt like that this intelligence was like kind of speaking to me in like through mm. images thoughts and feelings interesting and so but yeah like I would feel like something on my right face like just like pull like a grin and like it felt, ins- it felt like inside of me, not like at my actual skin. It felt like my, they're feeling like a layer under me to go up. I don't know, it was weird. So, wow. Yeah, I have a lot of time on my hands to go in the deep end and <laughs> speak. And, what uh, a great time right now to like go inside. Yeah. I mean, so, there's so many like memes and things like that. Like, if you can't go outside, go inside or whatever. But yeah, it's so right? True. It's, it's so true. You're doing like, it. Yeah. It's a great time to meditate. It's a great time to to heal yeah. you know people are powerful people we're we have uh, it's we had we forgotten i think we've forgotten our imagine how to use our imagination yeah. kids do it all the time we're yeah. playing play fighting this exactly and um and i think there's like a forgotten wisdom in ceremonies where we put the power and the beauty in our hands and we put it to recognize something greater than yes and the respect for tradition and the the recognition of the power of intention. Yeah. You know, like those are things that are like completely lost. Like I feel like people in the Western world hear intention and they think intention is woo-woo, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, no, that's powerful shit. That has yeah. the, the ability to determine your outcome of the way that you see a situation that is yeah. very powerful for your mind yeah. you know i think right now we're yeah. uh we're reevaluating some belief systems that we never really psychologically challenge but I've seen that too people don't see the beauty and power of setting tension and making mm-hmm. that your goal and but we should do something 
Well, dude, I'm, an, I'm definitely coming to Arizona when I come back, and we're going to go to that Peyote Way Church for sure. Yes, let's do it. That's definitely happening. Yeah, and we can brainstorm and right in Minnesota. Yes. <laughs> okay, but yeah, we can go on like, forever. This has mm-hmm. been so great. Now that having this kind of really insightful, inspiring conversation just makes me want to chat with you more, so we should yeah. – yeah, let's we do should this. chat again. Yeah. Now I want to. Yeah. Now I want to like get your. I want to get your story. <laughs> <laughs> I want to interview you. <laughs> oh shit! Okay, sounds great. Yeah. No, yeah, I love it. Uh, I get really stimulated with our conversations too. It's just reverberating yeah. our spiritual Definitely. ambitions. Um, but Absolutely. yeah, I could go on forever. I'm a chatterbox. Thank you for cool. being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having I gotta, me. I got to shorten it and edit uh, some stuff out. I don't have the state <laughs> right now, but I'll keep you posted. Okay. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really great. Such an honor to share my perspective. Do you have a shout out or do you have uh, any way to people get into contact with you when they want to have any more questions about the yogic way or through your experiences, how to help out people in their 20s? How do they reach out to you? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Um, Anything that has to do with yoga, meditation. I have all sorts of yoga video content, online meditations, um, things that I, that I want to share. I also do, I run yoga teacher trainings through um, a studio in Denver called Zenver Yoga. So it's like Denver, but with a Z as in mm-hmm. Zen. And um, my Instagram is at spirit underscore of underscore Satya. Um, that's S-A-T-Y-A. Mm-hmm. Um, and my email is the same without the underscore. So it's um, spirit of satya at gmail.com. And satya means truth in, in Sanskrit. So if you're curious as to what that means, that's what I love that it. Is. Yes, I love it. Yes. I'm always seeking so, the truth. yeah, of course. And I mean, I'm also open to Facebook friends. It's Katie Lee Bauschke, K A T Y. L-E-I-G-H and Bauschke is B as in boy, A-U-S-C-H-K-E. Okay, awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much for sharing your perspective again, Katie. It's wonderful. Um, I can imagine we're going to have part twos and part threes, but you enjoy the sacred lands. Thank you. And yeah, you as well. Enjoy the sacred lands of Arizona. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Katie. All right. We'll talk soon. Ciao.